10, 46 through 52, if you want to join me there. Again, that's Mark 10, 46 through 52. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with the disciples, a great crowd, and a great crowd, Bartimaeus and a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, for your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Well, one of the things I believe a healthy church does is a healthy church uh, is committed to discipleship, but also committed to uh, raising and training up leaders, Uh, men and women to lead the church in a variety of ways, all kinds of different ways that the church, we are to be a training ground for men and women to grow as disciples and leaders. Uh, You know, we want to be a church. I, I want our church so badly to be a place where one man, one person doesn't hold on to the ministry tightly, or even just by a couple, but something we all share together as God has uniquely gifted us. One of the ways God has called us to serve as elders in the church is by teaching of his word, whether that's from life group, leading a life group, to Sunday school, or to preaching in the main service. And uh, this morning, we're going to have one of our elders who's been serving for a few years. David Burnham's going to come and lead us in the word. So let's welcome David. Okay. Would you pray with me? Jesus, in the book of Corinthians, in the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, um, he said that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so um, we want to openly confess, uh, Father, that we can't understand who you are. We can't understand your word. We can't understand this stuff unless you help us out, Holy Spirit. So, Father, I ask that you would draw. Um, Jesus, I ask that you would keep... And Spirit of Jesus, I ask that you would interpret for us rightly, again, and afresh, and who this Jesus is. Um, I ask that the words, my mouth, the meditations of my heart will be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And Jesus, I I ask that we would walk away being like, man, you are so stinking amazing. Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Um, So it's really good to be with you. Um, my name is David. I'm one of the many Davids here at Bethany. Uh, we had a couple up here this morning, so 
Uh, and as Jeff said, I'm also one of the elders here. And before we get into God's Word, into the Gospel of Mark, which we've been at, I want to ask you a question. And that question is... It's coming up on the screen, maybe. Maybe it's coming on the screen. Yeah, have you ever been so committed to a particular idea that when an alternative presents itself, you totally miss it? Has that ever happened to you? I just want to share a little story. So I was, uh, I was traveling on my way to China about a month ago, and I arrived at the airport looking for this American guy, we'll call him Joe, um, who was going to pick me up in the Shenyang airport. I'd seen pictures of him, so I knew who to look for. And as I landed and made my way through the baggage claim and into the arrival area, what I saw was a sea of Chinese faces. No Joe, no white guy. Hmm. So I waited. And about 10 minutes later, a white dude came around, clearly looking for someone. We made eye contact, and he had a beard and was skinny. And I thought, you know, he can't be Joe, because that's not what he looks like in the picture. And he looked me up and down, then he went on his way trying to find whoever he's looking for. And about an hour later now, it's 9:10 at night, um, who knows what time it is in my body, I was still waiting for my ride with my two bags. I'm getting just a little bit nervous. I hadn't slept in the plane, I hadn't slept much at home between work and the airport, and my internet connection was sketchy to say the least. I had some cash, so I went to the currency exchange booth so I could at least get some money, so I could take a taxi, so I could go to my hotel, so I could go to bed. And as I was doing this, that white guy with the beard I saw earlier came running up to me. He said, hey, are you, excuse me, are you David? And I said, yeah, are you Joe? And he said, yes. And I said, you know, I wondered if that was you, but you have way more hair and a beard, so I thought it couldn't be you. And he responded to me, yeah, when I saw you, I thought, man, he has a lot of hair and not much stuff. An American should have way more stuff than that. That just couldn't be David. We were both, both Joe and I, we were committed to an idea about each other that we thought was right, but we were both actually wrong. And when we both showed up because we were committed to this idea, which was an incorrect idea, we could not see rightly and we missed each other. It was only temporarily, thankfully. So what I've titled this sermon is Great Expectations because all people have some belief, some expectation, some idea, some picture about who God is. Whether he's good or bad or nice or loving or just or trustworthy or namby-pamby or vindictive or he doesn't exist, he's three in one, blah, 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 whatever. Everyone has an idea about who God is. And in this little story we're going to look at in Mark, we're going to see, we're going to get a beautiful picture from Mark of what Jesus is like, um, that, and that he's consistent with the rest of the picture of Jesus that we've seen in Mark. And we're also going to examine what seeing and believing Jesus might look like, and we're going to consider this idea of what do we expect from Jesus? How, what, does that, what does that mean to us? So, what I want you to do is I want you to put on your ancient first century Jewish hat, prayer shawl, garment, stuff, sandals, whatever. 
I want you to imagine yourself that you are there. I want you to picture in your mind being with Jesus and you're on the road to Jerusalem. On the road to Jerusalem, 46. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving, that's Jesus, as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd. So let's pause really quick. So we're at Jericho. We're on the way to Jerusalem. There's two Jerichos, one in the Old Testament, not going to go there, one in the New Testament, um, one that this is likely the one that Herod the Great built um, a mile south of the old city. It's a populous avant-garde happening city, and this is, this is probably where we're at. So we're there on the road, and we're with a crowd. Okay, so this crowd is a mixed crowd. Um, we've got Jesus. We've got followers of Jesus, disciples. We've got a great crowd. And these people um, are, some of these people are going to celebrate Passover. Some of them are looking forward to this Messiah and their nation delivered. They're, they got a big question mark about Jesus. And there's also just people that are milling about in Jericho. And in general, this group is a religious group. Not religious leaders. Those, those guys come later on following chapters. But these people are religious people. They're monotheistic. They believe in Yahweh. They know the Torah and they hold to it. And they are hopeful for Messiah. They are looking for Messiah to come. The long-promised one who would bring them freedom. Maybe even freedom from Rome. Actually, perhaps they may not be unlike an average person that might attend church from time to time in North America. So, moving on. As they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Okay, who's this Bartimaeus guy? So Bartimaeus simply means son of Timaeus. Bar, Timaeus, Aramaic. Um, Timaeus means precious, valuable, or honored. However, Bartimaeus is only called Bartimaeus one time. He's called the blind beggar and the blind man two or three times. It's kind of an interesting choice, the identity speak that Mark uses, emphasizing his status in life. But also unique to Bartimaeus, he's the only recipient of healing from Jesus in the Gospel of Mark who gets a name. Think about that, like the Canaanite woman, blind guy, leper. Bartimaeus is the only one who gets a name. Fascinating. So we're going to call him Bart. It's a little easier to say. Bart, and he's a blind beggar. So what is life like for a blind beggar? And you probably can picture this a little bit. There's no SSI. There's no SSD. Um, homeless people uh, that were blind or maimed or had disability, they, would, they were poor. They would beg for alms. And if they were going to do it, this Jericho place was a good place to do it. Rich city, happening city. Lots of opportunity for alms. Um, a beggar, a homeless person, would be marginalized. Um, and just kind of like you might see in our city, like Portland or Seattle, you would see this. You would see people begging. You know, maybe they're holding up cardboard signs. Maybe it's like papyrus signs. They're, they're begging. And if you were a good Yahweh-fearing Jew, you would give alms to this guy. But that might be about it. And as you can imagine... Bart would have a shameful, embarrassing life. Not only is he homeless, but he's blind. 
he's an outcast. And I'm sure that maybe some of you here can identify with that in some fashion. You don't have to imagine the shame and the pain associated with being a blind beggar, um, the lost potential there. However, though Bartimaeus, though Bart is blind, Bart has heard of Jesus. Somehow he's heard of this Jesus. Um, He knows who Jesus is. And he cries out and he calls out to Jesus using a very interesting title. Son of David, he cries out. Now, Jesus regularly in Mark and in Matthew, he likes to call himself by the Son of Man, which is used from Daniel 7. It's this prophetic image of son of means like of a kind. So a son of man would be like a human. So the Son of Man goes up on the clouds and he's seated with and it's with, with Yahweh and the heavenlies and it's this beautiful picture and that's how Jesus talks about himself. But Bart uses a different title. He says, Son of David. It's the first time this is used in the Gospel of Mark. And it's used by a blind guy. So what son of David, like David, like a king. So Bartimaeus gets part of who Jesus is. He somehow gets that Jesus is a king. He somehow understands it. So he, he is making a claim on Jesus' royal identity. We know that Jesus is part of the line of David. We, are, we know that he's coming, that people are thinking he's going to be king. And Bartimaeus cries this out. He makes a claim on Jesus' royal identity. And this claim that's really loud and kind of annoying gets two reactions. We got one from the crowd and we get one from Jesus. So let's go on here to what to, um, to these two reactions. The first is the crowd. So let's talk about the crowd a little bit. The crowd. How do they respond? Well, the crowd is inconsistent and inaccurate in its perception of problems. Should be coming up here soon. This is for the note filling in part. Um, they're inconsistent, they're inaccurate in their perception of problems, and therefore they respond accordingly. So let's see, let's see about this crowd. So, and many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. So they, this crowd, they weren't expecting this. We know that the crowd is not a cohesive unit. We also know, like we said before, that they're a religious people. They believe in Yahweh. They know the Torah. They're interested in this Jesus guy. They clearly are not interested in helping Bart. Um, They don't ask Jesus to stop, nor do they bring him to Jesus until told to do so by Jesus. Um, There's kind of this annoyance, either because he's a beggar, he's a lowly person, he's making a racket, he's asking Jesus to stop. He's saying something that's politically charged. Maybe the crowd's just really uncomfortable with this whole situation. Um, We aren't really told a reason, but we see this group react by telling him to shut up. We also see that this is kind of a wishy-washy, a kind of a fickle group. The text is ambiguous about who yells shut up and who says cheer up, but they both come from the same group. So kind of like, what's going on here? Inconsistent. So let's talk about us for just a little bit. Sometimes we as humans can operate the same way. 
or maybe just I can operate the same way. My response to life comes from my beliefs about things. What I really believe, not just what I say I believe, but what I really believe comes out. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I've heard people say that when you're under pressure, people change. And that may be true, but what is more foundationally true is that when people are under pressure, what's really there in the first place is squeezed out, whether it's beautiful or yucky. And I know in some situations when I've been squeezed, a whole lot of yuck has come out. You can just ask my wife about that. She'll tell you. So like the rich young ruler we heard about a few weeks earlier who had his hand forced about what he thought about his eternal status, the crowd is shown here for what they believe about people, what they believe about Jesus, and how they're inconsistent. They're wishy-washy and fickle. They're selfish and rude, and they're very uncomfortable with the cries of those that don't fit in with their plan of the day. So uh, this is not a very impressive picture, and it's kind of vague. Um, so that's the first reaction, that, but then we got Jesus. How Jesus responds differently. How is Jesus going to respond? So moving to our second point, where's Jesus? There's Jesus. Jesus. How is Jesus going to respond. So reading here, and Jesus, no, and many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he, Bart, sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Does that sound familiar, that question? So Jesus is different. Um, moving to the next fill in, our second point here, Jesus consistently loves to respond to the cries of the desperate, and he does so perfectly. So just a few little observations about Jesus' character and how he responds. So Jesus is kind of a flat character, and what I mean by that, he's not up and down like the crowd or Bart. He's very calm. He's matter-of-fact, he's not hyper, he's authoritative, and he's very brief. He says three things. But he's very interesting. Look at the process here. So first, Bart cries out, then the crowd shushes him, then Bart cries out more and louder, and then Jesus stops, and then he tells the crowd to call him. The crowd calls him, Bart comes to Jesus, Jesus asks a question. So just that process, a few notes about that process. Jesus didn't stop for Bart until Bart called and until Bart kept calling. He called incessantly. Jesus didn't stop for him. Hmm. He also doesn't come to Bart. Hmm. But instead, he commands the crowd to tell Bart to come. So he actually invites the crowd to participate. And he tells them how to be different with him. He, doesn't, he also doesn't rebuke Bart for his cry. He doesn't correct Bart's confession. Bart cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus doesn't say, okay, Bart, now hold on a second, man. We've got to talk about this. You're, you're not right. He doesn't say that. He just, he affirms what Bart is saying. His confession is correct. Hmm. Then he asks this question 
what do you want me to do for you? Can you imagine this? So remember, you're in your first century Jewish garb, and you're there on the road. You're in the crowd. There's Jesus. His face is set like flint towards Jerusalem, but he's also going to his death. At least that's what he said. He's just finished telling his closest bros about what's going to happen to him, how he's going to be betrayed, how he's going to be handed over to the authorities, how he's going to be delivered to the Romans and tortured and crucified. So he's told them all this. And he tells them, we were here last week, that he hasn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And here he is, leaving Jericho, moving toward Jerusalem with a motley crew of an entourage to become king. And on the way, a blind homeless man cries out, and Jesus stops to answer him. Jesus is acting consistent with what we've seen of his character so far in Mark. But also not exactly in ways that we would have predicted. He's consistent, but he's unpredictable. Have you ever noticed that about Jesus? Have you noticed that Jesus never does the same thing the same way? How he walks into situations, and when he leaves them, the situations are different? Have you noticed that about him? Have you noticed that he says things that kind of make you uncomfortable? Strange man, this Jesus. So he, he answers the cries of this desperate man. Have you heard the cries of the desperate? Can you tell the difference between the cries of those that really are desperate and those that aren't desperate? I can't. I mean, we, we don't do a very good job with this. You know, we see a homeless person on the road and we have this question, well, should we give him money or should we not? What is he going to do with it? No, we, have to, we have to wrestle with this. But Jesus doesn't. He knows exactly what to do, and he sees the man's heart. Isn't that cool? Man. So, and then, then he asks the same questions that he asked James and John last week, if that's where it sounds familiar. What do you want me to do for you? But a different thing happens this time. Jesus heals Bart, and then he keeps going to Jerusalem. So before we move on, I want to ask you something this morning. How desperate are you? Are you desperate? What, what are you desperate for? How often do you hear Jesus asking you this very same question? What do you want me to do for you? Have you heard him say it to you? Because he still does. Daniel Garland, uh, in his commentary, has this quote about this question. What do you want me to do for you is the most important question God ever asks us. And the one to which we most frequently give the wrong answer. We ask for all the wrong things in life. Our answer to this question will reveal whether we want death or life, whether we want to be healed from our blindness, or selfishly want to use God to do our bidding and fulfill our own desires. So enough about us. Let's go back to Bart. How did Bart respond? How did he answer this question? 
Bart. Where's Bart? 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 There you are. Okay. So, 51. Here we go. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, or Rabbani, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. So before we get to the third point, we got to talk about this little interchange between Bart and Jesus because it has the potential of being just a tiny bit scandalous. So Jesus says what he says here, what Jesus says here begs the question, well, what do you mean, Jesus? Your faith has made you well. Is this a formula? I mean, what are we talking about here? So did a little bit of homework. And for those of you that are Greek scholars in the room, please um, be kind to me. So we're going to talk about the Greek word for faith that's used here. It's used all the New Testament. It's the Greek word pistis. There it is up there. It's a noun, and this is what this word means. It's, it means faith, faithfulness, belief, trust, with an implication that actions based on that trust will follow. Hmm. Okay. So that's the noun. And then similarly, the verb is Pisteu, pisteo, pisteu. It's on the next slide, I hope. Boom, chakalaka. There it is. Belief. This is the verb to believe, to put one's trust in, uh, to put one's faith in with an implication that actions based on that trust will follow. So the Bible talks about the word faith, pistis, more as an action based upon or connected to a relationship. It's not a cognitive or mental assent. It's more of an expectancy in the object of faith. A resting or trusting in that object. It's more about the object. Do you see that? So it's more about the object. And there's also some level of conditionalness. There's a condition here. So here's the statement that Jesus made. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. The result was being made well. The means was pistis, faith, and the cause was Christ. So how does the Bible talk about faith? Well, pistis, faith, is used multiple times in the New Testament alone in this semi-conditional manner. So I'm going to read through some different texts um, from the New Testament, and while I'm reading for them, I want you to hear the word faith when, it, when I say it, and I want you to think about two things, okay? So the first thing, I want you to think about who God is and what does trusting in him look like, okay? So when, I hear, when I'm reading this, I want you to think about who is God, who God is, and what does trusting in him look like? You ready? You ready for it? You can do it? Okay. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11.6, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. From John 1, 11 and 12, but to all who received him, to those who pisteo or believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Acts 3.16 so Peter's talking to a, a group of people who've just watched someone be healed. And his, that's Jesus' name, 
And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And that faith, that is through Jesus, has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. James 2.14. But what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And lastly, this is the one we all know, right? John 3.16, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So, I don't know about you, but this is kind of a hard thing for me, because I come from a logical, rational people. We're logical, rational people. And this idea has more of a relational meaning, more of a Hebrew, Hebrew tone to it. And so, I'm going to use... A little example to make this point. We're going to have a little object lesson, and I need my lovely assistant. Where are you, lovely assistant? Come on up, lovely assistant. She's going to help me out. So some of you may have heard this before, and so if you've heard, that one's locked. I found out earlier. So if if you heard this before, please bear bear with me. So do you want to get the door? Yeah. So we're talking about the object, right? It's about the objects. That's the little hint. Okay, so, um, excuse me. So, I have here a chair, and I've got another chair. Are you going to bring that, Anna? So, we've got, got a chair. <clears throat> Perfect. Isn't she lovely? Man, love it. Okay, fantastic. Okay, so, okay, so now what are these? The chairs. Okay, now what do you do with the chair? Perfect. Okay. So I'm glad we're on that point. So these chairs come from our house, and, um, uh, and some of you might be familiar with these chairs. And so if you are, don't say anything, okay? So um, if you're familiar with these chairs, don't say anything. But uh, you just look at these chairs. You see them? They're different kinds of chairs, but they have the same function. They look a little bit differently. So this one, as you can tell, this is like rock solid. So this thing... Who knows when this thing was made, but it will probably be around until like King Tut rises or something. This thing is like, this is secure. So, but this chair is, this chair is a little different. Soft, it's plush. I like this chair a lot because I can sit and I can play guitar. There's no like, you know, armrest to it. But when you sit in this chair, and that's what happens every single time I sit in this chair is my heart starts racing. So... We have this chair. You see this? For those on the other side, you can see it. You just kind of, you just kind of, yeah. So, so um, this chair is in our house, but this chair is always up against the wall because this chair needs the wall to support it. Okay, I really like this chair, and. But I don't, I, don't, I don't think about this chair, but I do think about this chair. Every single time I, I, think, I see this chair, I think, oh, well, it's not that comfortable. But I don't think about its function at all, okay? Every time I look at this chair, the first thing I do is I say to myself, well, is it up against the wall? And I have to go check to make sure it's up against the wall. Because if it's not up against the wall, that's going to happen. So, and Anna said to me, it's okay if it breaks. I'm ready to be done with this thing. And it didn't break, so... I'm thankful for that. Yeah, she's a bummer, yeah. So, um, so 
we're talking about faith is, about, is more about a response to the object or the person, more about this expectancy, okay? This, it's this relational thing more than a formulaic thing. It's more of a response, all right? So, and that's, I'm using that word a lot. So, I know this chair and I know that chair. I take care when I use this chair and I think a lot about this chair. I don't think at all when I use this chair. It's just, just, just like any of these chairs. You, when you sit down in this chair, you don't think, is it going to support my weight? But now when you come to our house, you're going to see that chair, <laughs> and you're going to wonder. We have, like, steered people away from this chair. So, um, so the analogy will break down at some point, no pun intended, but do you see, do you see the connection here? Do you see it? There's a problem with the crowd and how they see Jesus. How they knew him to be as well as how they saw people. They were committed to an idea that wasn't really accurate. The cra- and because of that, the crowd says things like, dude, shut up, pipe down, your situation isn't important. Jesus is going to be made king. Why are you interrupting? This is really awkward. Wrong question, wrong time. Do You see the, the flow there. Bart, on the other hand, though he's blind, saw rightly who Jesus was. He saw incompletely, of course, because, you know, he's a homeless guy, doesn't know, you know, but he perceived Jesus as one that he could trust, one that he could rest on. In fact, so much so that what does he do? He desperately grabs for Jesus as if it's his only chance. What was Bart's faith? What was his faith in? Was the faith the grabbing or was it in the object? What was Bart expecting from Jesus? So last week, James and John, they asked Jesus for power and place and glory and elevation and want to sit at your right hand and your left. But Bart asks for something totally different. Bart asks for a basic thing. He wants to be able to see. Perhaps Isaiah 42 would have been in his mind as he wondered about Jesus. It should be coming up here pretty soon. Isaiah 42, 16 says, I will lead the blind in a way they do not know. In past they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do and I do not forsake them. Isn't that good news? These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. And Jesus, who is known by the things that he does, uses his royal authority, his kingly authority, in a work of healing and mercy, a sign of the kingdom. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. There's no lesson on theology here. There's no lesson that he gave to James and John about his purpose in coming. The text just says that Jesus answers, go your way, your faith has healed you, and keeps walking, just like the Energizer Bunny, right towards Jerusalem. Where he will suffer, he will die, and he will rise again. This is the last recorded healing in the book of Mark. 
Once again, Jesus serves before going to give his life as a ransom for many. One set of commentators say about this healing that Bartimaeus, Bart's faith was the necessary means, not the efficient cause of this healing. Jesus caused this, but I don't want us to miss it this morning. Faith is at the same time both a gift from God and a human response. Both are effectual, but only in concert with each other. And this brings us to our last point. Where do we go from here? Starting in 50 again. And throwing off his cloak, he, Bart, sprang up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbani, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So let's look, let's look at this. So this is our last, our last point, and this is kind of like our point. So it's like our response point. Um, exercising faith is the appropriate movement of the disciple. So let's look at what exercising faith is the appropriate movement of the disciple. Let's look at Bart's behavior here. So Bart had heard about Jesus of Nazareth somehow. Um, maybe it was prior to Jesus coming to town. Maybe it was when Jesus was in town. But he had heard about him. He had faith. He, he figured some things out about Jesus, and he decided that he agreed with them, and he had faith. And so because of that, when Jesus showed up, he desperately cried out. And when Bart was called, he dropped everything, and he came. His cloak, Bart's cloak, would have been used to collect alms. It was like his one possession, his one source of income. And when Jesus calls him, he like drops it. He gives it up, and he runs to Jesus. Doesn't hold on to it at all. And when Bart is asked, he asks for sight. He asks for physical sight. And he also gives us a sign of what we all need, which is we all need spiritual sight. We need to be able to see and see rightly. And then what does he do? And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So look at this. It's clear what Bart really wants. Not just sight. Yes, he wanted to see, but that's not all. He could have left and seen the world. Jesus, thanks, man. Thanks, dude. There are places and people I've been dying to see. But that's not what he did. He could have left, but he follows Jesus instead. Every other person that Jesus heals in Mark, Jesus tells them to go their way or go in peace, and every single person does just that, except for this formerly blind beggar named Bartimaeus, who's living on the streets of Jericho. Crazy story, huh? All right, so that brings us to our response. Talking a lot about response. So how do we engage with this text? But I think a more appropriate question is, how do we respond and engage with Jesus? The text just points us to Jesus. So how do we engage with Jesus? Now there's a ton of ways this can play out. 
and I wrote down a ton of questions, and I practiced it, and I could have fired off like 35 of them. Um, and if you want those questions, you can, I can give you a copy um, and see how this applies. But instead, I want to talk about a different question that we talked about earlier, the question about desperation. And I want us to spend some time like pondering and, and thinking about that. What are you desperate for? Like, what are you really desperate for? And if desperate is too strong a word, if it's too romantic a word, what do you need? The second question I have is based upon who Jesus is. What kind of expectancy do you have for him? So if Jesus were to ask you that question, what do you want me to do for you? What would you say? And I ask these because if we're really honest with ourselves and with each other, all of us are in need. We know it, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not just talking about, like, our sinful state because we are all in desperate need of a Savior. Like, that too, but we're all in need. We're in desperation in different parts of our lives. At elder meetings, the first thing we do at every elder meeting is we pray, and we pray for you all. And we could probably spend hours and hours and hours and hours praying for y'all because the needs are great. And I enjoy doing it. So I, we know, like, we have needs here. <laughs> it's okay to, like, be honest about that. We have needs. So we have needs. We have desperation with our health. We have desperation with our relationships, with our kids. We have desperation in our marriages. We have desperation in our relationships with each other. We have desperation as we suffer a loss. As we wait for Jesus' healing hand, and as we try to share the gospel with our neighbors and coworkers. So we're going to do two things corporately to respond. The first thing we're going to do together is we're going to pray corporately. So um, before the worship team comes up, we're going to take some time to pray. What I mean by that is I want to give us some moments in silence, and maybe it's not so silent for you, but to just pray the same thing that Bart prayed, which is, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give us some time to do that, and then uh, I'm going I'm to finish this up after that. And if you feel so inclined to get on your knees, to stand, whatever, um, this isn't a circus and we don't have time to be crazy, but this is like the cry of desperation. Do you hear it this morning? This is all he had. It was like his one shot. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And I know that you feel it because I felt it too. And I feel it now. So let's take some time to pray and I'll close this up in a few minutes.
Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy upon us. Give us vision this morning. Give us a clear picture of who you are. I think I can speak uh, appropriately for all of us and say we want to see you and we want to follow you. I thank you for answering our prayers. I thank you for interceding on our behalf before the Father. We say together as a group that we love you, that we trust you, and we look forward with expectancy to what you're going to do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, music folk, come on up. So here's the second thing we're going to do to respond. So regardless of where you're at this morning, regardless of how you respond or what you're thinking about or how you're engaging with the Lord, there is good news. I've got good news for you. And this is our second response. That's to hear the good news and to remember, okay? So the story doesn't end and it doesn't even start with your response. The story starts and ends like it always has and always will with Jesus. So Jesus, he's the object of our faith, and he's truly amazing. Jesus is so compassionate, so loving, that while we were still sinners, believing wrong things about God and doing wrong things, while we were enemies of God, Jesus came and he died for us, and we didn't even know it. Jesus is trustworthy, and you can trust him. So I encourage you, church, and those of you who are not part of the church, but you're here this morning to put your trust in Jesus, to rest, to sit, to rest in his character, trust his nature because he's good. And there's more good news. Jesus acts a lot like Yahweh in this story. Spoiler alert, he is Yahweh. Jesus is authoritative. He's on mission to establish a kingdom and a people, and nobody gets it. Jesus is commanding the crowd, telling them how to change the way they engage with one another. He's asking the big question that pierces people's hearts. He has mercy on a blind man and with a word heals him. But Jesus is also a lot like you and me. He's a human. He's a lot like Bart, actually. Jesus also expressed a trust and a faith in Yahweh, but he called him his father. Because they have a relationship, you see, as they always have, and they always will. While Bart gave up his cloak to follow Jesus, entrusting himself to Jesus, Jesus was obedient to the Father, giving up his will, stating, not my will, but your will be done. Bart was, I don't know, we don't know what Bart was expecting when he was going to follow Jesus, and he might have been in for the shock of his life the next week as Jesus was nailed to a cross. But Jesus entrusted his will to the Father's plan, and he knew that it would cost him dearly. Jesus also has asked a really big ask from the Father. Not unlike you and I, we've asked big asks from the Father. He asked a big ask from the Father while on the cross, in fact. He shouted out, maybe like Bart, but not for the Father to have mercy on him. No, he shouted out, Father, forgive them they don't know what they're doing. He shouted for mercy on them, and he shouted for mercy on us. And the Father, just like Jesus, was very, very, very pleased 
to answer that request. You guys ready to sing? You guys ready to sing? Let's sing. <laughs>